Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. And be sure to stay tuned at the end of the episode for a special conversation between myself and our guest, Seth Stewart, about a new podcast that we host called Spoken Gospel. Let's jump in. Well, welcome to a very interesting episode of the Bridgeway Podcast today. I'm super excited to have the pastor of student ministry. That's me. Seth Seth Stewart. Stewart. Here you are. We did that. We did the same time. Uh, Yeah. Seth and I also host another podcast, actually. Spoken Gospel. That's not our theme song. It's our private theme song. It's called the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Uh, If you want to check that out, we we seek to speak the gospel out of every corner of scripture. That's over at SpokenGospelPodcast.com. But for now, Seth, we're talking today about how... How to engage culture with your kids. Yes. Because like culture is like the boogeyman for a lot of parents. It is. It's, it's out to get you. But what I think is most fascinating is that we're often unaware of how culture affects us in the first place. Oh, okay. So there's this old Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what a water, if you want to know what water is, uh-huh. don't ask a fish. Oh, because... Because fish don't know they're wet. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you get it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like fish don't know they're wet. And right. so a lot of the times... The point is it's really difficult to know sometimes and let alone articulate and engage our environment and culture because often it affects us in ways that we don't always recognize. It's really easy to point at something in culture and we know that's unbiblical and say, let's just say homosexuality. It's really easy to point that out. Right. But it's sometimes less easy to talk about consumerism and comfort and right. the way that, that like affects our Because it's the water we swim in. It's the water we swim in. Mm. So... Culture is to humans what water is to fish in a lot of ways. Sure. We swim in it, we breathe in it, we can't escape it. And so I think before we start defining culture or anything else, like I I think parents need to know that you can't protect your kids from culture. Mm. Because I think there is a sense in which most parents believe that if we build sufficient walls and protection around our kids, we can insulate them from the worst of the world's influences. But It's impossible to do that in the same way that it's impossible for a fish to escape water. And more than that, I actually think it's unbiblical to try to protect our kids in that way from culture. Okay, so before we go to unbiblical, I want to go back to impossible because I'm very curious about that. Because it seems to me that, like, it's not impossible because um, if I completely withdrew from culture and cut off everything and built a little mini society in which nothing could enter except that which I allow, I could insulate my kids from culture? I mean, theoretically, you could do that. (laughs) But as soon as you turn on the TV or give your kid a phone or have an iPad in your house or listen to public radio or watch the news, culture... Or go to public school. Or or, go to public school or have a friend that's not... Have a friend. (laughs) Have a friend. Like, you can't prevent the water. And besides that, culture is more than just the things you watch and read. Okay. It's also like the society we live in mm. as well. And I was going to get to this in a little in a second, but culture isn't just the ideas we ingest, it's actually what we do with the world and what the world does to us as right. well. So I was thinking like so we so 
So okay, so it's not it, it it is it is impossible to keep your kids from culture, barring some kind of insane monastic uh, monastic family yeah community. camp living out in the middle of nowhere. But you would import your own culture from that which you left, right? Even if you were able to escape the broader culture, you would still have a family culture right. that you're trying to preserve. And I would actually say that that's actually very biblical, and we need to be pressing into that. Right. But the family culture doesn't just need to be its own culture. It must engage the broader culture as well, okay. which is why I said to insulate your family like that is unbiblical. unbiblical. Okay. Because when praying for his disciples, Jesus speaks to how many parents, I think, normally unintentionally parent our children away from the culture. Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus praying to God for his disciples says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, out of the culture, but that you keep them in the world from the evil one. He's praying that his disciples wouldn't be isolated from the cultural waves, but that they would be strong enough to swim in them. So I think that's what I want for our families at Bridgeway. Like fa- I want families that are strong enough to swim in the cultural surf and not get taken out by it. Yeah, I mean the the uh, the whole be in the world and of the world is is a really common thing we get thrown around, and I feel like it's a bumper sticker that gets put on a lot of different vehicles of thought. Um, what 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 gives us the right to understand? I don't want to take. Them, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world to mean out of the culture? What gives us the right to make that logical jump? When Jesus is talking to his disciples in that, and to, to God for his disciples, most commentators are going to say that he, what he's talking about is suffering. Mm. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. That's going to cause them to suffer. And we have a lot Through of texts. Persecution. Persecution, and like okay. whatever else. But that you give them the strength to stand up within the midst of that persecution. Okay. So when we talk about persecution in... America, mm. we normally aren't talking about persecution the way that the disciples experienced it. We're not going to die for our belief. Right. But we do talk about persecution and um, ostracized, like being ostracized yeah. for our faith, mm-hmm. being sidelined because of our faith. Maybe we don't get certain jobs. Maybe it's more difficult for us to get employed if we have certain stances on lgbtq issues maybe it's more difficult to become a a small business owner if you you know like there's all these things that happen because of our christian faith that our society our world our culture might um push up against and might marginalize us for i don't think that's happened to a a huge degree i think christians are generally able to do Mm -hmm. that but i think there is a sense in which that persecution here and suffering like are a There is a line between what Jesus is talking about and what we will experience as families and people in our society as well. Mm. And so, I mean, it's not, and again, what is culture? It is what the world says is normal, but also what it's what the world says is normal. And Mm. what was normal in that culture in Jesus's day was, was to persecute those that didn't buy in to the worldview of the Roman empire. Right. And And so we're in a very similar situation today with the stakes aren't as high. Right. And and so, I mean, I'm also thinking like, you know, we don't have to necessarily isolate this text. We can also think about, you know, how could we fulfill any other, any of the other uh, commands of Jesus if we did withdraw from society? Like it would be impossible to be the salt of the earth if we put all the salt in a silo in the middle of the desert. And, right. Right. So you don't, you, light of the world, you can't put it You don't need this one text no, to you don't. prove it. Right. But I think it's a powerful way for us to think about it. Jesus yes. and praying for his disciples and parents, our first 
responsibility for our kids isn't to create carbon copies of ourselves, but mm. make disciples of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is praying the prayer that sends his disciples out into the world once he dies, like that's the context of this prayer. He's about to die and leave them on mm. their own. And as we send our kids out in the world, what is Jesus praying? Don't take them out of the world. Right. But prepare them. Right. Keep them strong. So like how as families can we swim in the cultural surf? Right. I love I want to re- I want I want to repeat what you said uh, before I derailed with all my questions because I thought it was really powerful. You you talked about that you're not talking that you want you're not saying that, you know, here at Bridgeway or you know your wish for families listening to this would not be that we would get kids out of the water, but you would make them strong enough to swim in the cultural, cultural surf. surf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, swim in the cultural surf. I think it's really good. So where do we go from here then? I think probably we need to say what is culture. Like, great. How and, do we define? Yeah, and culture? you said culture is what what people do with the world, okay, and then what the world does to us, right? And you also said return. it's it's what's normal, or yeah, it's what's normal. Okay, so we take so culture is created this way. All right, we take our values and our ideas and our imagination, and then we shape and create societies and cities and families around those ideas. And a lot of time what happens, those things that we create, that we externalize, become normal f- things in our world. And then those new normal things turn around and shape us in our values. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So let me give you an example. All right. So think about cars. Okay. I'm thinking about cars. Thinking about cars. <laughs> cars are a normal part of human existence in Oklahoma City. Yes. And that's because we have built a city that was designed for cars. Yes. The invention of the car happened, and we built a city that valued and had the idea of making a city that was easily accessible by cars. Yeah. So we created large, long highways. We planned neighborhoods and suburbs that are spread out from one another and a long way away from shopping centers. Cars are normal because we have created a society built mm-hmm. for cars. Right. That's our culture. But that culture actually turns around and affects our values mm-hmm. as well. So what's considered a rite of passage for an, a normal American teenager? Getting your driver's license. Getting your driver's license. Yeah. Driving. What started out as a value for ease of transportation created a culture where driving was mm. normal, which then created a new value for what it means to be an adult. Yeah. So we are constantly creating culture. But culture is also constantly recreating us right. as we engage yeah. in it. And, and, and yeah, you could unpack that a ton. It's really interesting because you could talk about like muscle car culture and street racing culture and uh, fancy cars and like right. keeping up with the Joneses on having the newest model. It, it created a whole bunch of other things. It did. Yeah. yeah. It really, and like, like we don't walk, you know, we drive. We don't, we have like more an insulated bubble because we're not doing public transportation. We're always in our own personal vehicle. It That's goes right. on and on and on. We made a culture, and the culture turned around and made us. Yes. That's very helpful. It is, and I think a lot of times it creates a lot of fear. Like, we can't Mm. stop being affected by the culture. But I think that while we do need to be aware that our world and culture will affect our families, I also think that means we need to realize our families can push back. Mm. Our families can be part of creating a new culture in the world today and changing the way our kids and our students and our churches and our communities actually respond and interact with the world okay that sounds fun yeah all right
So um, before we go into how to do that, I, I think what was really interesting about this the car thing that you brought up yeah. was that when I think about culture and wanting to help my kids engage with culture responsibly, those the 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 car one is one of the innocuous ones I don't necessarily think about. You know, like I feel right. like it's like I think about Twitter and I think about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, all Me those. Too. Yeah, how do yeah. I? Yeah, how do I help my kids engage with those things? But um, it's it's possible to say that like a lot of times those can be not necessarily red herrings that distract us and you know getting us to put our our attention in the wrong places, but it's these um, innocuous cultural forces that we ignore and affect us in ways that we didn't even think about. Right. And I think it would be a mistake for all of us, parents and kids and pastors and adults and single people, to assume that Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, homosexuality, all happen in a cultural vacuum. Right. That they are their own cultural entity separate from everything else. Is that what you mean? No, what I mean is that we have probably bought into some presupposition that makes transgenderism so powerful ourselves and we don't realize it. Mm. So for example, so like if we were to just say, so transgenderism, super, super controversial, difficult to talk about. Gender dysphoria is real. It affects people. There are Mm -hmm. people suffering who are listening to this that we need to be sensitive to. But at the bottom of transgenderism is the assumption that what we feel is more true than our body. And so culturally, that's a very big shift. Yeah. Up until it was actually the not before the Gnostics, but so before the time of Jesus, it was what was true about our bodies is most true about us. Like that's who we are. We are our bodies. Mm. But now we've moved to like we are our feelings. Yeah. And what is most true is our feelings. And so that has looks, and that's like the un, the cultural value that upholds mm. the transgendered movement. But Christians have adopted that same cultural value yes. in ways that are less innocuous. So the idea of being authentic, right? Like that's actually a good thing. Being authentic, wanting to be real with people. But what is why culturally is that important? Because it's a pre. It says that like what's most true about us is how we feel, mm-hmm. and not how we present ourselves in our bodies or with our face or on Instagram. Right. It's actually what we feel. So the authentic that movement to be authentic is actually built on the same cultural presupposition that transgenderism is wow. built on. Yeah, and so you would say that that at at the bottom, then whenever we're talking, wanting to engage our engage our kids with with culture. It's not necessarily that we need to take issues head on, um, we, and we do. We do need to do but, that. But like, there's also deep cultural presuppositions. It's the water we swim in. That's the water we swim in. That's the water we swim in, and yeah. that's what we need to talk to our kids about. Like, what yeah. is the role of feelings in your worldview? And right. That's very interesting. Because the whole Western society or American society has opinions about that, that we swim in and we don't always articulate. I just don't know if I ever thought about... Cult, that being cult, culture, I know I I know it is like if you if you like put it on a test and made me write is right. this culture? Yes, I would say yes. Our culture is this worldview, but I think when I hear the word culture, I think of movies and social movements and politics and things like that. I don't think about uh, a philosophical stance like yeah. like it's values and yeah, ideas. It's interesting that are presented in I like so those ideas are normally then taken and like championed by a particular person. So, yeah. and then those things become artifacts. So the fu- cultural artifacts. Cultural artifacts. So when like you hear somebody use the term cultural artifacts, they're talking about movies and songs I and see. lyrics, but actually there's 
there's actually a whole before you do a cultural artifact you, you need to have, have an idea yeah and culture is underneath all of that right, right. you have to have an idea that yeah is, that's championed by a, an artist or a director who creates a product based right. on his ideas yes so you actually have to go all the way back to the ideas themselves mm. that we often don't under right. even realize we're processing and working through wow okay that's really helpful now i'll let you go back <laughs> to the question or to where we were headed which was um, creating counterculture in our families. Yes. So it's like we don't have to just swim in the water with the rest of the world, but actually we can. And I think you were even saying that we are called to, biblically, create counterculture in families. So what what's that all about? Well, so if you go back, all the way back to Genesis 1. All the way back. All the way back to Genesis 1, uh, 28. We have um, God commanding a family to create culture. Okay. He says in verse 28, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over every living thing that moves in the earth. So a lot of th- that theologians traditionally have called that the cultural mandate. Mm. He's not just telling Adam and Eve to become really good gardeners and right. really good zookeepers. <laughs> He's telling them to, act- to like, be fruitful, to multiply, to have a society that cares for God's world, structures cities according to God's plan, and makes art and music and architecture for God's glory. Mm. He's commanding them to be culture-creating beings in this world. Yeah. So a lot of people say, well, well how do you get that from right. Genesis 1? And the way that I get that is actually you just fast forward by going all the way to the end mm. and seeing Revelation. The last two chapters of Revelation, we see this global expansive civilization pictured and and at the same time it's in the garden of eden right you have the the elements from the garden of eden you have the same river running through the center tree of life you have the tree of life for the healing of nations but the big difference is that it's in the middle of a city and that's in a city comes with things it comes with buildings it comes with architecture Mm -hmm. it comes with city planning Think about the way that the book of Revelation so carefully details the dimensions of that city. Yeah. Why? Because it communicates a degree of perfection and design that God intends for us to have in culture. Wow. Like heaven has an architecture and it communicates something about the heavenly culture. So like culture is important for families. Like Mm. we must be in the process of creating culture because God commands families to in the very beginning. Right. It matters for all the, Christians. The family of Adam and Eve. The family of Adam and Eve right. and the children that they, that they would have. would have had in the garden and then did have yeah. outside the garden. And did have outside the garden. So yeah, culture matters for all Christians because we must create a culture so, that stands so, apart from the world. So we're still carriers, you would say, of this cultural mandate. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, and families are specifically positioned to be the ones who start that. Why right? is that? Because God makes the command to families first. I see. To Adam and Eve first. He said, this family and the children that you have will be a part of making my culture spread throughout the world. Mm. So how do we as families go about doing that? <laughs> how, do we, how, do, how, how does a family right. with uh, soccer schedules and dinners and going to school and packing up lunches and going to work, how do we make culture in the midst of all is that just something i add to my calendar is that something we're doing around the clock what does that look like i think you could talk about a lot of things okay and a lot of people will make culture differently but i think the 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 easiest thing like the practical thing is to be involved in a church 
mm. in a local church that has communities that your family can be a part of. Where is the, what has God promised to build? It's not our own personal cultures. He's promised to build the church. Mm. And that church is made up of families who are trying to create this countercultural society based on the values of the yes. kingdom of God, not mm. the values of the world. Right. So what's the first thing you want to do? If you want to help like your kids like stand up and swim in the cultural waters, be involved in a local church that has strong community that you can be a part of and participate in and serve in mm. and give to. So, I mean, that's the the lowest bar is like be involved and commit to a local church. And one of the things I would say here too is like I meet a lot of students who go to a lot of whose parents and families go to multiple churches. Mm. Different kids will go to different youth groups and their parents will go to a different church and their kid goes to youth group at. And I would say like I understand why they want to have a, a social space where that happens. But I would also say there's probably you need to be thinking about the cultural value of staying together as a family in a local church so that you can be preparing them for the world. And I would say that happens better when you're all in the same community mm. looking to create a similar type of culture. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Uh, you surprised me with that answer, though. I wasn't expecting that. Oh, you weren't? <laughs> no, I wasn't. find culture as like you know the things that we make and turn around and make us and culture is what's normal and accepted so I thought you're gonna say like well you know in your daily family rhythms create what you want to be normal you know and create what you know make something that you want to turn around and make your kids you know yes and, and so I would say that yes, too do that right but I would also so like but how do we make the kingdom of God in our families mm without being connected to the place the kingdom of God has promised to grow and right. grow in. No, you're absolutely right. I think right. I think it's I didn't I don't, I don't think it's the wrong answer. I just I was surprised by it. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I think that is the right answer." <laughs> but, you know, and then I think people are going to want to know like how do I build culture like in my kitchen and dining room and in my living room and things like that. I mean, I I, I think of family worship time, you know, but like what else is there that you you could think of and like how do we build culture in the home? I think practically the most we could use a lot of really practical things like yeah. talk to your kids about culture don't avoid yeah. the hard topics make sure you're talking about sex and homosexuality before yep. your kids hear it from school and they will hear from it definitely the average age of pornography first of pornography exposure is 11 and most parents don't yes. talk to their kids about sex until that time mm. and a lot of the times the first time they're introduced to sex is through perversion of it yeah and so like i think one like being proactive and having conversations earlier than you think you need to have them. That's not to say because it's more moral, that's a recognition of the culture that we live in. Right. Our culture will educate your children, especially on sex, before most Christian parents think their kids are ready for it. Right. But, I mean, because you, if, I mean, to, to use the fish metaphor, and this is going to misuse it, <laughs> but it's like the, the picture I got in my head was like, you know, if, okay, if your kid's a fish and, you know, this, this sex, sexual conversation, sexual culture, they're going to be tossed into one body of water. Let's say that the world sexual culture is salt water and, uh, you know, the, the, the kingdoms is fresh water. It's like if they get accustomed to salt water before you introduce fresh water to them, they're not going to move ponds. 
No, it'll be it'll be very shocking right. for them. And so it'd be better for them to know how to swim in fresh water and find that refreshing. And then whenever someone tries to introduce salt to it, they're like, mm, that's not quite where I want to live. They'll have an intuitive understanding of why that's different right. from what they know be to be true. Different or, water know. they're swimming in. Yeah. And yeah. so like that's part of what we're trying to do. And that's why I took culture all the way back to the presuppositions that under I think it's really helpful culture Mm -hmm. and so I think apart from so I think the most helpful thing we could talk about then is how to have those types of conversations definitely how do you have conversations that get underneath the cultural artifacts like twitter handles and movies and theaters but how do you dig through those to what it's preaching to you yeah can I ask you that question yeah (laughs) and so let me let me start by like taking us back all the way again so again like we want to build for ourselves a structure to have these conversations really fluently that's right so think about so if if culture is what people do with the world culture really is mostly about people Mm. and so what what we need to ask is what does the bible say about people and then how does that inform how we think about culture okay so what the Bible says about people is three things All right. simultaneously. It's actually a very nuanced picture of humanity. Normally, if you talk to the average secular person today, they will say that humanity is essentially good, that in themselves they're essentially good. Yeah. And if you talk to the average fundamentalist who is, or the people who have deconverted from Christianity into the secular world, one of the things they'll say that they grew up in and what they couldn't stand about their Christian upbringing was how they said, essentially, you're a terrible person. Yeah. You're a worm. You're not worth anything. But actually, Christianity gives a far more nuanced picture of what it means to be a human being. And it actually kind of affirms both at the same time, both mm. the fundamentalists and the liberals. It says in we're made in the image of God. Right. Actually, at our fundamental level, we were created to be good. Yeah. And that the things that we create would be good. Right. That the things that we make and care for would be good. The ideas that we have would be good. The things that we do would be good. Like we are made in the image of God and are fundamentally good. Mm. But, but Genesis 3 comes along yeah. and s- introduces like a fatal flaw into humanity. Right. That says actually we are incapable of acting like we are made in the image of God. That we will always choose to disregard that image for an image of ourselves. We yes. will always sin and we'll always be fallen and all that is good will be tainted with bad. Right. So right off the bat, in the first three chapters of the Bible, we have a far more complex picture of humanity than any worldview really offers, that mm. we are fundamentally good, but at the same time fundamentally flawed and unable to escape from that wow. flawedness. Okay, but there's a third? There's a third category. Okay. <laughs> And so in Genesis 3, 2, we're told about this snake crusher that's going to come and oh, yeah. crush the head of the serpent. Mm-hmm. We actually know that we know that, that snake crusher is Jesus right. who does away with sin mm. and actually redeems fallen humanity. So the third category for human beings is we have, we have basically good, basically bad, but re- and redeemed. Mm. So we are actually being taken from our flawed naturally sinful selves and turning ourselves into people that look more like Jesus, people that look more like the image of God, people that look more glorified like the day we will when we are in heaven. And so at any point in time in human culture, 
any group of people that make things will actually have all three of those things present in it simultaneously. There'll be some things that are good that we can affirm, some things that are negative we must dismiss, right. and other things that can be redeemed oh, for see. the glory of God. Okay. So if we had these three categories of human being, as human beings, we're those three things simultaneously, culture simultaneously, which is made up of the things humans do, oh, yeah. will have those three things in it as well. Interesting. Does that make sense? It, it does. So so I, I don't want to jump, but I'm just listening and like I'm right. guessing where you're going is then how we make culture in a gospel-centered way is we are we looking for things to redeem? Is that the job of the Christian engaging culture? Or I think the job of families who uh-huh. are trying to get their kids to be strong swimmers yep. is to help them to be fluent in the gospel enough that they are able to look at culture and say, here's what we can affirm, mm. here's what we must deny, right. and here's how we can redeem this thing for God's glory. Great. And so, and it's in that way that we can normally get down to the heart of the matter. Mm. So let's take the movie Moana. Let's do it. Let's, I love it. Moana is a great movie. We've talked about Moana before. I love it's a, it's one of my favorite Pixar movies. It's Well, too bad it's not a Pixar well, it's not, movie. It's, it's not Pixar. It's Disney. It's, it's just, Disney. Uh, it fooled me. That's how good it is. It fooled, it me. fooled <laughs> me. It was so good I thought it was Pixar. <laughs> so there's a narrative in a lot of Disney movies that's mm-hmm. in it's there's some crisis created and the princess, the protagonist, whoever fixes the problem by following their heart. Right. They follow their heart and they become their best selves and they're able to overcome the dragon, overcome whatever conflict there is in the story by being who they really are. Right? So that's yes. the general general theme of most Disney movies. Yes. But follow your heart. Follow your heart. And normally that's pitted up against um, what society wants you to do. Yeah, like some kind of system. So yeah, your mo- your royal family doesn't want you to marry that like ragamuffin. They right. want you to marry the esteemed prince. Yeah, so follow your heart and marry the person that you want, and right. you'll live happily ever after. And your parents will come around. And your parents will eventually come around. <laughs> Everything will work. And you'll change the system. And so, and, what is yeah. the functional savior in that story? Uh, Following your heart. your your feelings. Yeah, and, yeah. Fo- doing what you most want. Doing what you most want is the functional savior. Functional like you hero. Are, you are your own god. You and your own opinions. You are in your. So okay. we had probably have parents who listened to that and they just, they were like, whoa, well, how did you get there so quickly? But let's, <laughs> so let's just take what the, so let's go back to Moana. Okay. So the Moana. very first, such a good song, <laughs> yeah, I like okay. it, sing all the <laughs> I know. So the very first scene is Moana trying to come to grips with what her tribe expects of her. Her dad wants her to be the next leader right. of the tribe. There's all these songs about her wanting, her going to, it's like this whole song where she comes to understand that she is going to lead this people and she right. was meant to live on the island, even though there's these other desires that right. seem to be drawing she her She wants away. to be on the sea. She wants to be on the sea. Yeah. And then the second song of Moana is all about how she wants to be out there on right. the ocean and she wants to follow her heart. And so there's this conflict yep. in the first two songs of Moana. One, be true to what society says you are mm-hmm. and be true to what your heart says. Right. Now, what can we inf- affirm and deny about that? And mm. what can be redeemed there? Interesting. Okay, so scripture would actually tell us we are not actually fundamentally what society tells us we are. Mm. People don't define for us what our role is or what we're supposed to do. And there are actually traditional societies today where the communal consensus on who you are and what you're supposed to be, many Asian and right. African, tradi- more traditional societies actually still function that way. But 
at, at the same time, the Bible would also say what's most true about you isn't who you say you are. Mm. It's actually who, like, you can't trust your heart to give you an accurate picture. Right. The heart is deceitful above, above all things, things, Jeremiah said. Right. right. And so what? So what's actually at the bottom of both of those ways of viewing your identity? What culture? Okay, I'm a little confused here. I feel, uh, or am I clear? Oh, no, you're clear. Okay. I, I was trying, my face was, yeah. our podcast listeners can't see my face. I was trying to figure out what what the answer was, and I couldn't, so I'm waiting with bated breath. So in the more traditional view that says that your society, your culture, your family, your clan decides your identity, it assumes that your clan is actually untainted by sin and has is able to give you an identity that actually ma- that is oh, best and, for you. And, so they're, they're inerrant and objective. And, right. Okay, I gotcha. But the modern mind would actually say, no, what you feel is actually what's untainted by sin. That's inerrant and objective. And that's inerrant and objective. Okay. And that can give you the best direction for life. Mm. But what does scripture actually tell us about how we form our identity and what we're supposed to do? Mm. It actually says identity is given to us from above. Right. That who we are is not what we decide or what our culture decides, but what God decides. Wow. And that who we are are sons and daughters of God himself, redeemed and valued at the price of Jesus's blood, Mm. and who are now ministers of reconciliation in a broken world. Wow. And it also goes back and corrects those other two places that were wrong, because, you know, whereas the the traditional society would say that your clan and your family give you your identity, God says, no, uh, you as a, a people, as a race, were separated from the commonwealth of my family. You were my enemy. You hated me. You were at war with me. So you you weren't you right. weren't going to find the right answer there. Right. And then it's not yourself either. Like we've said, it's, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. You can't look there. But then after you go and find your identity in God through Christ, you're then able to work backwards and he redefines your family. And he says, let me show you how to actually, who, who is your mother? Who is your father? Like, let me actually show you how to redefine family in light of the gospel. Let me show you how to actually, instead of trusting your old heart, let me give you a new heart that yes. is actually through the spirit can actually lead you into good things instead of deceitful things. So that's cool how it yeah. actually works backwards and recreates. And so what can we affirm about Moana? Mm. We can actually affirm that Moana has correctly identified that society is an inappropriate way to determine value and identity. Oh, I see. But it's incorrectly proposed a solution. That oh, is, you can yeah. find it for yourself. Right. But now, here's where Moana gets super interesting. Most Disney movies will end there. The princess, the protagonist follows their heart, and they're able to, to overcome their, um, their obstacle, the right. crisis, whatever else. But in Moana, you actually have Moana fights Tafiti twice. Right. And she goes up to Moana super confident, ready to go, following her heart, and she fails the first time. Mm-hmm. And then what has to happen? Her grandmother comes as this godlike figure and has to give her an identity right. for herself. She sings this Do You Know Who You Are song. Do you it's know? all about identity. It's all about identity. Yeah. And so what it, actually Moana flips it on its head a bit flips it on its head a bit and actually like is closer to the biblical narrative Intr- than a lot I've of never people. thought of it like that yeah so the, this divine figure has mm. to come and tell her who she really is well wow. i think moana ultimately fails though to provide a biblical narrative because when she finally does right defeat tafiti how does she do it by realizing who she really is yep. in her inner self right not who the divine being says they are contrary to themselves, right. which is what I would say the Christian yes. worldview is. So it is interesting. Yeah. There are a lot of layers in Moana that are helpful for parents to tease out. So 
you have a seven-year-old child. I have a uh, three-week-old child. You have a three-week-year-old child. But just <laughs> but imagine. Hypothetically, I have hypothetically, Ezra is now seven. Hypothetically, your son's now seven, or the average watcher of Moana is about five, seven, okay. nine years old. How do you have that conversation mm, with them? Yeah. I think the best way that you can do these conversations with your kids is to take something, to be persuasive with your kids, is to take something about the movie that is true. Did you see how Moana didn't want to be what her society told her that she was? That was a good thing. Mm. Like society can't determine who we are. But did you also notice how, how she won was by realizing who she was? That actually doesn't work. Mm. Only God can tell you who you are. Yeah. You can't look, don't look to yourself because it's not going to work out. I, I promise you, if you follow your heart, it's going to be disappointing and frustrating and hard and unsatisfying. Only God. Can, I mean, that's a, that's a hard conversation to have. Yeah. Well, as, I mean, it's, it, having a, having a, having an identity conversation based on Moana with a seven-year-old sounds less difficult than but here, having a sexuality conversation with a 14-year-old. But here's the bar. <laughs> okay. Have the conversation. Right. Just do it. Actually try to find things in the worldview and the culture that you can affirm. Mm. And then have that conversation with your child. Most kids, I work with students for a living. Right. And I was once a teenager myself. And I'm sure all these listeners that are adults were once teenagers themselves. What's the one opinion we always have of our parents? They're dumb. They're dumb. (laughs) They don't know what I'm talking about. They They don't don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. I don't, they don't understand. Right. So what would be entirely countercultural to your students and your child's narrative Mm. to affirm something the movie points out? Right. And this is actually just apologetically, if you can take anything in the culture and say, this is actually a good value that I can affirm. Right. But if you really want that, you actually can't get it the way that you want. Mm. You actually need God. Yeah. You need Jesus to give you what you want. That's good. You don't want society to, to determine value for you. Good. Yeah. Neither does God. And mm. he says, I can give it to you. Like that is more convincing than saying um, Milana's demonic. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Seth, thank you so much for being here with me today. This has been really enlightening. Um, even whenever you were kind of running over your notes with me and talking about this, uh, I kind of thought, I was like, oh, I have an idea of what Seth's going to say. This was <laughs> so much more helpful um, and, and actually surprised me at several turns. Um, so good. Uh, as, a, as a new father of a three-week-old, I'm excited to have this yeah. podcast to go back and listen to. <laughs> also, for all those parents out there who've decided not to watch Moana with their children because of all the pagan influences, I understand. Me, yeah. That's not You're that, not you're not jabbing at them. I'm, I'm not jabbing at them. I was just talking. Right. Yeah. Okay. Just by making sure. Just there cover my bases. <laughs> I got a lot of parents out there that are listening to this. That's good. Awesome, Seth. Well, I'm looking forward to have you back on. I think we're gonna do another cultural ish conversation next time, maybe a, since we mentioned it so much in this episode about the L G B T Q movement. Um having conversations like that with your teen. We might we might have you on to talk about that. Great. Super easy topic so easy yeah so So easy thank you so much man uh appreciate you and uh, thank you all for listening and we will see you next week well thank you so much for listening to this week's edition of the bridgeway podcast like i said at the beginning we have a special sneak preview of a new podcast that is uh featuring me and seth like you heard today it is called the spoken gospel podcast and uh we'd like to play for you the short little pilot that seth and i put together that explains what we will be doing on that podcast what our goals are and everything like that we truly hope you enjoy to find out more about that podcast visit spoken 
christiangospelpodcast.com. And for more about the Bridgeway Podcast, visit bridgewaychurch.com. Welcome to Spoken Gospel. This is our journey to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. I'm David Bowden. Uh, and I'm Seth Stewart. Yeah, and uh, me and Seth are a couple buddies here in Oklahoma City, and uh, I'm a spoken word poet and an author. And Seth, tell us about yourself. I'm a pastor of students and families at Bridgeway Church. I blog, and I have a wife and kids, and I uh, love food and coffee, things like that. Sometimes together, food and coffee together. Yeah. Yeah. In a blender. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're just, uh, you know, like I said, we're just two friends, and we, we believe firmly that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Uh, in fact, we believe that everything is about Jesus. Yeah, Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. Yeah, and I think Paul says something very similar in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He says, for by him, being Jesus, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. Yeah. Everything in the world is about Jesus. And most certainly the Bible, which is God's very word, that is particularly all about Jesus from the Old Testament to the New. That's right. And we see Jesus explaining that on the road to Emmaus after he's resurrected in Luke 24, 25 to 27. It says, um, and then he said to these disciples, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Yep. In John 5, it is something very similar with Pharisees who are just missing Jesus, but have the scriptures. They say, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And you do, but it's they that point and bear witness about me, Jesus. That's right. And in fact, we, we're so convinced that Jesus is, is throughout all the Bible. We're so convinced with this reading of the Bible and seeing how it points to Jesus that um, we think that if you don't do that, you're actually reading the Bible with a veil over it. Yeah, a veil remains unlifted if we don't see Christ. Second uh, Corinthians three fourteen through sixteen. Uh, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, referring to Jewish hearts before the resurrection of Christ. But when the one turns to the Lord. The veil is removed. Yeah. In fact, the, the text that, that, that Seth just read goes on to say that it is this gospel that is veiled. That's what's being veiled throughout the whole Bible. There's this veil that lies over it, and it's hiding the gospel. But when the veil is taken away by the Spirit of God, and we see the gospel throughout the Bible, we don't just get new information or like discover these clever connections or threads throughout the Bible. What we actually see, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God. And not only do we see Jesus, that same passage says that by seeing him, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Seeing Jesus in his gospel throughout the whole Bible uh, is not about trying to see something that isn't really there, but trusting the spirit of God to show us what's actually there. And what's really there is the image and the glory of God in Jesus. That's right. This isn't about trying to see beyond the text or trying to look through the text. It isn't about overlooking the actual historical events or the author's own intent to see something mystical or secret. It's about seeing how God operated in historical events through authorial intent in the text of Scripture to show us more of his glory in Jesus. 
So we will begin by walking through each major section of the book of Exodus to lay some groundwork for what we're talking about. After that, our goal is to address some of the more difficult, confusing, or controversial sections of Scripture and help make sense of them through the gospel of Jesus. We are doing it in this way because this podcast is actually part of a larger project. Uh, I'm currently working on writing a spoken word poem for each book of the Bible, overviewing its message and showing how it all points to Jesus. This will take place over many years, but we hope that this podcast will be a place where people can come and see us kind of show our work and how we arrived at some of our conclusions and help them work through their Bibles one book at a time, seeing how everything is summed up in Christ. So we want to thank you for joining us and uh, checking out this short introduction to the podcast. We invite you to go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you can be alerted when we have new episodes. We're so excited for you to join us on this long journey to speak the gospel out of every corner of scripture. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.